Just say a word of prayer and then I'll bring God's word to you. Father, what a joy to come in and sing and worship and see each other face to face and to encourage, to build up, to spur each other on uh, for the Lord. Bless our time together, Lord, this morning. May your word always reign supreme authority over our lives, above our own reasoning, above our own emotions. Your word will lead us. Uh, so we ask for your blessing this morning. Amen. Have you heard of a story about a man who died and went to heaven? And Peter said to the man, you must be able to spell a word before I can let you enter. And the man asked Peter, what is the word? And Peter replied, please spell the word love. He said, L-O-V-E. Very good, you may come in. And just after the man got in, Peter got caught up by God to, do, to attend to some other things. And then he instructed this man, please stand at this gate. Whoever comes, just ask them to spell the word love. If they are able to spell the word love, let them in. If not, sorry. And a few minutes later, the man's wife came up. And she said, what happened? Say it's so good to see you. She said, could you let me in? She said, yes, but Peter said, you must be able to uh, spell a word. He said, all right. What word? She said, please spell Czechoslovakia. <laughs> of course, just for the sake of, if you are absolutely biblically illiterate, that's not the word to get entrance to heaven. Why I say that? Because I shared this joke in a church before I preached. And after that, there was one lady who came to me and asked me, how do you spell Czechoslovakia? <laughs> I said, you, you're not serious, are you? I said, this, you don't need that to be again. <laughs> but today, we are going to reflect on a passage in John 14. Uh, the series is not over yet. The series will end next week on the marriage supper lamp. But in order to get there, we need to pass through this, what we call the valley of death. And uh, the valley of death, actually, don't have to be fearful. Uh, death is not your enemy. Death is always our friend. For Christian, it should be our friend. We should embrace death. Uh, Japanese author, by the name of Haruki Murakami, he said, death is not the opposite of life, but a part of it. A part of it. Part of living is dying. The process of living is the process of dying. <laughs> it is heading towards that way. Anyway, and, uh, and Ernest Hemingway, which is probably more familiar to us, he said that every man's life ends the same way. It is only the details of how he lived and how he died that distinguish one man from another. Every man's life ends the same way. On Tuesday, I'm conducting a funeral. Uh, it ends the same way. But it is only the details of how he lived and how he died that distinguish one man from another. But the question then is, what is going to determine how you live and how you die? And to me, the way to determine that is, whether you know where you're heading after you died. 
it's almost like uh, the story of Alice in the Wonderland. Remember, he, he came to the crossroad, and he doesn't, she doesn't know which way to turn, and then chest higher, the cat was there. And she asked the cat and said, which way should I go? And the chest higher said to Alice, well, where are you going? She said, I don't know. Then she said, then it doesn't matter. If you don't know where you're going, it really doesn't matter which way you turn, whether you turn left or right. If I don't have a destination after service to go home, it doesn't matter which way I turn. When I come up from Marcus Road, it could be left, it could be right, it could go straight, because I don't have a destination in mind. And so what is going to determine how you live and how you die is where you are heading after you die. And if you don't know where you are going, then it doesn't really matter which way you go. So John 14 has bring a lot of comfort to many, many people, funerals, we always hear it read because that is something that man has lost control. We, have, we can control our life, even though somewhat limited, but when it comes to death, we don't have control over. And I remember when I was in uh, Pakistan, I have a Korean friend, before he left for Pakistan and went back to Korea, every morning he would go up to the rooftop and he would do his devotion. And then he'll come back down, we'll have breakfast together. So I asked him, what passage do you read today? He said, John 14. And then the next day, same thing, he came down and said, what passage did you read today? He said, John 14. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. Every time I asked him, he said, John 14. Because he was so troubled, he doesn't know what he's going to do after his trip to Pakistan for a number of years. He just at a loss. He's a single man. And he said, I have to read John 14 because it brings a lot of comfort to me. And James Barry was the man who wrote Peter Pan. And he said that his mother's favorite Bible passage was John 14. And she read it so much that when her Bible was open and sat down, the pages naturally fell open to John 14. And he said that when she was old and could no longer read these words, she would stoop down to her Bible and kiss the page where the words were printed. And so what I'm going to do is I want to read the 11 verses to you. I probably will have time for three verses uh, because there's so much to unpack. Let me just read to you and see whether it brings so much comfort to you. John 14 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, <coughs> would, I have not, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Thank God for Thomas who asked that question. Otherwise, we don't have verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know me, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Before I come to John 14 verse 1 to 3, I want you to consider the creation account because it ties in together. We all know that the first page in the Bible is Genesis 1 verse 1 and 2 and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, it was empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I think you would agree with me that this, there was no place for man to dwell. Even before God made man, He wanted to make a place where man can dwell in. But there was no place for man to dwell, so this empty and chaotic darkness was by no means suitable for man. There was no place for him in this dark, and chaotic abyss. And so God, as we know, we read Genesis 1 and 2, is known as creation account. So God began to bring the earth into shape. He began by the power of His Word, let there be light. He began to form and fashion the earth into realms suitable for His creatures. And so verse 3 and 4, God said, Well, let there be light, and there was light. God said that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. So day one, He created the light. Light created and divided from darkness. And then day two, atmosphere created, divided from others. And then day three, land created and divided from water, vegetation created as well. So first three days is all about God making. And then the next three days, four, fifth, and sixth, God began to fill the earth. So day four, sun, moon, and stars created to fill the sky. Day five, creatures created to fill the sky and water. And then day six, creatures created to fill the land. Man created as pinnacle of creation. Pinnacle of creation. And then day seven, we all know that God rested from all His work. Much can be said about the creation, about account of Genesis chapter 1. But what I want you to see is that at the heart of this creation is this idea that God made a place for man. 
He created all things visible and invisible by the power of His Word. And He then, by the power of His Word, brought the earth out of its formless, empty and dark state. And He did so until there was a place where man could dwell. And then Genesis 2 is pretty much similar, but it zoomed in upon man. Man, we are told, was created directly by God from dust. He was created and God breathed into him the breath of life. And then very interestingly, in verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord formed the man. And then verse 8 tells us something. It says, now the Lord, after he created man, he said, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. So he made a place and now he put Adam into the place that he had formed. And the question that we need to ask is, what actually make paradise, paradise? What actually make heaven, heaven? What is so good about heaven? What is so good about paradise that we call it paradise? What is so good about heaven that we call it heaven? You know, we use heaven as a way to describe something that is beyond any... It's, it's the best, it's the ultimate. This is heaven, you know, this is paradise. It is the ultimate. But what makes the ultimate, ultimate? What makes heaven actually heaven? What makes paradise actually paradise? What is so good about heaven or paradise that we long, hopefully, we long to be there? Is it because of the place? It is a perfect climate? And we talk about climate change so much. Is it because the weather will be perfect? Or there's lushness of the place, the Eden is beautiful? Or is it because there's abundance of food? Or maybe in Revelation chapter 21, say that there will be no more sickness or tears or death. Is it because there's all this thing that makes heaven heaven, make heaven the best, the ultimate, that makes paradise, paradise. Is it all these things? Well, I, I do think that these things certainly contributed to our enjoyment of paradise. But I'd like to suggest to you from the creation account that it probably had nothing to do with the physical creation that made heaven's heaven. But I think rather it had everything to do with the fact that it was there that man walk with God. Eden, which is the original creation, was like a temple where men enjoyed unbroken, unhindered, and unmediated fellowship with the God who made him. So Adam and Eve walked with God. He was their God and they his people. God tabernacled with man. God dwelled with man in that place. And I think because God's presence is there and dwell with man, that is what makes paradise, paradise. That is what makes heaven, heaven. And not so much because it is nice and all that. It's because of God's presence that dwell with the people that makes heaven, heaven. But when you start to read Genesis chapter 3, that you are familiar with it, everything begins to fall apart, which is what we call the fall of man. 
And so if you progress through Genesis chapter 3, you will see what we call the man's original sin, which is called the fall. And the consequence of the sin of our first parents was that that paradise was lost. That relationship with God is lost. That paradise was lost. That heavens that we call heavens is lost it. We lost it. And so man was put out of the garden, the paradise. The way to the tree of life was blocked. But more than that, all of this we should notice that man lost his place before God. No longer would he be able to walk with God in this unbroken, unhindered, unmediated way. He was now a sinner. He was a child of wrath. He stood guilty before God, condemned. But as again, we all have been Christian for a long time. We know the story. God showed mercy to fallen man. And in an act of sheer grace, he started to begin the process of restoring this paradise to man. And in case you are not aware, right at the start after man fell, in chapter 3, where God pronounced curse on men and women, and this is the curse that he pronounced on, this, on Satan. But I want you to, to notice that after he pronounced the curse, immediately there is this beautiful thing, what the theologian called proto-evangelism. Proto-evangelism. Proto means first, evangelism means gospel. The first gospel, the hint of God restoring paradise to us was beginning after the fall of man. And he said these things. This is called the proto-evangelism. First gospel. It says, this is a curse to Satan, okay? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I mean, how often do you describe women as seed? If not, it is described to Jesus, isn't it? To bear the seed, the bore this child. So straight, immediately, God already began the process of restoring paradise to man. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, meaning Jesus shall bruise your head but you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, there's a counter, right? Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross, but Jesus is going to crush Satan. He will be doomed in the end. So this is what we call the, the proto-evangelism, the first gospel, the fifth hymn of the gospel. Immediately the paradise was lost. Immediately God set about restoring the paradise to man. That sometime in the future, God is going to restore this to humanity. So this is the first promise given after the Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. The first gospel, because this was spoken by God, contained the first promise of redemption in the Bible. And so everything else in the Bible flows from these words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Is God in the process now to restore this paradise to humanity? English preacher Charles Simeon called this verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. Although you may not see it at the first glance, but Christ is in this verse. He is the ultimate seed of the woman who would one day come to crush 
the serpent's ugly head. And so with that creation account setting before you, I'm going to bring you now come to John chapter 14. So that was then, and then we bypass all these prophets, the kingdom era and all that, all the Old Testament until the dawn of Christ, and Christ lived for three years on uh, 33 years, uh, the final three years in ministry, and then now this John 14, it was his final night. Final night. I say Thursday night, but Pastor Bruce will say it's Wednesday night. Uh, final night before he went, goes to the cross. And so John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, possibly 17 is known as the farewell discourse. So if John got 21 chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, four chapters is devoted to the final night of his conversation with his disciples. And we know chapter 13, he was the disciples' feet and, and had the last supper and all that. And now... Uh, he has his final words to tell his disciples about his departure. Because the accumulation of this restoration of paradise is about to happen. It's about to happen. And so, this is the context. So picture him in the upper room with his disciples. He had walked with them for over three years. He had taught them many things. He performed miracles before their eyes and in the sight of others. They believed that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. Peter said about that in John chapter 6, when all the 10,000 people fed on the, his bread and, and fish, he walked away. They confessed that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. And so they expected him to be around forever. But now he's talking about going away. He's talking about leaving them. In John chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus said, Little children, Yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also said to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And the, the disciples, they are troubled at his word. They were greatly distressed. They were bothered at the thought of their master going away. After all, as I said, they expected him to remain forever. He's expecting to set up the kingdom on earth. We have given up everything. We give up our fishing career, everything to follow you. And then now you're telling us that you're leaving us, departing and going to somewhere that we cannot come? And here Jesus wants to bring comfort to his disciples and give them a larger picture of what he's actually going to achieve. And that is to restore this paradise that humanity has lost to us. And that is what John 14 is all about. Jesus is comforting his disciples concerning his departure. And not only he comforted the eleven, but he comforted all of us who live between the first and second coming of Christ. They at that time, is Jesus was with them and departing. For us, is between this first coming and the second coming, this period of time. And that God will ultimately restore this physical paradise to us when eventually we return to Him. So how does Christ comfort those who are His who will live in the time between this first and second comings? I actually have three points for you, just, just for the sake of taking your notes. Uh, place, uh, path, and person. Uh, I think verses 1 to 11 talk about the place, path, 
and the person. But I have only I'm going to only cover the place, and that is in verse one to three. Uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Remember, they were in turmoil, wondering where is he going. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's an imperative. In the Greek, it's imperative. It's a command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Stop. Stop. Don't trouble. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Stop. Stop sliding down the pathway and be troubled and bothered by, by others. Stop. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be troubled. Interesting, if you look back into John Gospel, chapter 11, 12, and 13, three times Jesus himself was troubled. In John 11, verse 33, uh, when Jesus saw uh, Martha or Mary weeping, uh, on the, because of Lazarus' death, the Jews who had come along with her also weep. And here it said, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then in chapter 12, again in verse 27, he said, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, 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 no. It was for this very reason I came for this hour, to restore paradise again to us. And he was troubled. And then in chapter 13, verse 21, again, uh, he said, uh, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And Jesus himself was tremendously troubled of the task that he filled. And here Jesus, despite of all that he has to go through himself, said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Do not trouble. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God which is invisible in your eyes. You believe Him, but believe also in me which make this God visible to you for three years, 33 years. Believe also in me. And then as you read, progress down until verse 11, you are beginning to see that he, this, this is the part where he, he is proclaiming His divinity, once again convincing His disciples, I am God. Don't you get it? Don't you get it that I spend so much time with you that when you see me, you see the Father? Don't you get it? Believe in God, but believe also in me. And then he went on to say, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? King James Version, so in my father's house has many mansions, but the original word probably means dwelling place. Um, Christ's meaning here is more likely a reassurance that in the family of God, there is room for all of them, more so than a promise for a fancy house. And it's the same word that's being used in John 14, verse 23, where Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My, my father will love him and we will come to them and make our home with them. It's the same word. Make our home with them. It's the dwelling place that, that we have been talking about. What makes heaven heaven? That God's dwelling is what makes heaven's heaven. And, 
and Jesus is trying to comfort them to say, I'm going away for a little while to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and take you to be where I am. I think if you're a migrant, you will know that there are many migrants I'm aware. Uh, I constantly receive phone calls from uh, friends back home and say, oh, so-and-so is migrating to Australia. Uh, what church do you attend? Could you give him a call? Or give, it a, give him your church name so that they can come and visit your church and find their home church. Uh, and I will always fill in, find out more details. And, and we all know migrants sometimes, uh, uh, the man of the house will leave, leave the family behind, the wife and the children, they'll come here on their own, they'll look for a school for the children, they'll buy a house, they'll settle everything in, you know, buy the fridge and set up the house, and once it's all done, plan for the right time, and then bring the wife and the children all over. And so the departure is temporary. It's always temporary, and here Jesus is saying the same thing. It's temporary. So it was with Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. He will leave His disciples on earth for a time, but for good reason, because He departed in order to prepare a place for those who belong to Him. He has gone to a place to prepare, he has gone to prepare a place for us. So when Jesus said He was going to prepare a place for, for, the, for, for the, us, He was speaking of His death. We should not imagine that Jesus has been building heaven for the last 2,000 years and that it is still under construction. But rather, His words simply means that His death was the preparation for us to receive a place in the Father's house and it is ready now. In my Father's house, is referring to heaven. Heaven is a place where God dwells, it is true. There is a sense in which God is everywhere, is omnipresent, but heaven is the place where His glory dwells. And so here, He's also telling us of the new heavens and new earth that He's going to prepare for us that spells up in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 says this. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. God's dwelling place is now among the people. God tabernacle with the people. And He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more funeral to conduct. There will be no mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the ultimate and final place that Christ is preparing for those who are His, and that is for His bride, the church. 
This is a reason why I began this sermon by rehearsing the creation account. When you and I think of the new heavens and earth, we ought to have this in mind, the original creation. In the end, the original creation, Eden, will be restored. In the end, the people of God will possess that which the first Adam forfeited. We will possess what the first Adam forfeited by trusting in the second Adam, as Romans says, Christ, who accomplished salvation for us through death, resurrection, and leaving us to prepare the place for us. Just as God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, making a suitable place for the first Adam to dwell, so too Christ will usher in the new Jerusalem, the new creation at the end of time, having prepared a place suitable for those united to Him to dwell. And the difference between the first creation and the new creation is that the new creation, there will be no possibility for rebellion. We will enter into consummate rest, secure rest, eternal rest, everlasting rest. The first paradise could be lost. The second paradise cannot be lost because it has been earned or paid full by Jesus. You are not on mortgage, paid full, who is the Christ, the second Adam. There is different, this is the difference between Eden and the new Jerusalem, eternal state. But although there's different, there's similarity. The similarity with both the original creation and the new creation, and the central and the significant feature is that God dwells in the midst of of His people. The people of God were enjoined, unbroken, unmediated, unhindered fellowship with the God who made them. This is what makes paradise, paradise. So when so I just want to clear this out in the sense where because when we think about heaven, we often accustom it with pearly gates, streets of gold, mansions on the hills that we sometimes sing of it as well. We speak, we speak often of no more sin, sickness or death. And this is true and we long for these things. But I think we are amiss, terribly missed out. If, when thinking of the new heavens and the new earth, we fail to see that God with us as the most treasured feature of all. He is what makes heaven heaven. He is what makes paradise paradise. He indeed is our life. And, and that concept has been working since, as I said, the fall. Way back in Ezekiel, already start to forecast, although he's forecasting the first coming, because in order to get to the new heaven and new earth, he has to go through a few stages. And in the Old Testament time, is forecasting Jesus. He said, For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding about the state of Israel. And I will cleanse them, they will be my people, and I will be their God. In verse 37, you remember Pastor Caroline preached a sermon on the Valley of the Dry Bones. 
And then further down in verse 26, he said, I will make a covenant with, of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Again, forecasting right from the start of the ultimate end of God's dwelling with us. And then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy, when my sanctuary is among them forever. Of course, as I said, these things have already been fulfilled in part at Christ's first coming, because this is Old Testament prophecy. In order to get to new heaven and earth, you have to go through different stages. And it has been fulfilled in part at Christ's first coming, but they will be fully fulfilled, completely fully, at His second coming. And the book of Revelation paints the same picture for us as I already read to you in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. God with us. We will indeed enjoy unbroken, unhindered, unmediated fellowship with the God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why, that is why in verse 3, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This is just another version that I put it just as a picture of tabernacle, dwelling place, that God dwell with us. I hope and I pray that you are comforted by these words of Jesus. Though we may struggle here on earth, in the time between Christ's first and second coming, He has prepared a place for us. What you and I deserve is to be cast out from the presence of God just like Adam and Eve. But after that, immediately God set about the work to restore paradise to us by dwelling with us. Just as God made a place suitable for Adam, so too Christ had made a place suitable for you and me through His obedient life, His sacrificial death, and His resurrection. And He has promised to return for us he would depart for a time, but this separation would not be final. He promised that he would return for his bride. And eventually we'll have this marriage supper of the Lamb. Next week, Pastor Caroline will address that. Uh, eventually will come for the bride. Maybe I'll just read the verses to you and then I'll give a concluding, concluding remark. As I say, this is the place they bring comfort to us. And the second point is actually the path. And then the path, the path is Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a pathway through Jesus. Whatever you can say about Jesus, I think it is extremely reasonable because truth by definition should be exclusive. True, if truth is not exclusive, then it's not truth. Truth has to be exclusive by definition. And then, 
he talked about person. So uh, place, path, and then the person is Jesus Christ. Jesus went on to, to proclaim his divinity. Haven't you known that if you see the Father, you see me? It is through Jesus that we can't come to eventually God able to dwell with us. I want to finish with two thoughts. The final thoughts is, remember Christmas is around the corner after our, our uh, series next week, come December, we'll, we'll, we'll begin the Christmas series on original Christmas carols, focusing on various songs, Zechariah's, Mary's song, and, and, and all that. And, but we are very familiar when it comes to Christmas of this story about uh, Joseph and Mary, and then Mary eventually gave birth to Jesus. Where? In a manger or in a stable. And the reason for that is because there was no room available for them. The same word is being used here again. While there's no room for Jesus to be born, there's going to be plenty of rooms for believers, to, to, for those who believe in Jesus. So there's a contrast there where there's no room, but here is in my father's house are many rooms. And my final thought is, remember in Sunday school or kids' church, all of us know this beautiful, simple song, Heaven is a wonderful place, yes? Filled with glory and grace. And then? Why heaven is wonderful? I want to see my Savior's face. It's God's dwelling place with us that makes heaven heaven, that makes paradise a paradise where there's no longer any unhindered, unmediated fellowship that we can have with this God that we worship. Let me just invite you to uh, close your eyes as we say a word of prayer and then Chris is going to come and lead us in this closing song. Lord, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. And I think the author got it right. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. It is wonderful because of Jesus, not because of the place itself, but because of this relationship, this unhindered, unbroken unmediated fellowship that we can have God. Thank you for restoring paradise to us straight after man has failed. Thank you for your grace. Right at the start, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel that you go about beginning the process of restoring this relationship and it made possible when Jesus died on the cross. And here in John 14, before he died, he said, I'm going to do that because without me doing that, we cannot restore paradise to you. And now we, at this point of junction in 2021, we live in between this, this first and second coming. And we know it's nearer than ever before of your second coming. And we look forward, Lord, to that. But we just want to say thank you for your grace, dear Jesus, for making it possible for us. And we look forward to that time, the day when, as we sang 10,000 risen just now, Lord, uh, when time will come when, when we can no longer walk on this earth. Our bodies fail, fall apart, and uh, we thank you that our souls and our spirit will go to you. 
Thank you, Lord. As we close this song, we're going to be reminded again of your amazing grace. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this?